All right, guys, welcome back to Riding to Excellence. This is the third and final presentation from our virtual lecture that we had on April 17th at the clinic. This one is with our very own Dr. Travis Kelter and focuses about focuses on equine metabolic syndrome and not to poke fun, but just to have a little bit fun with it, is called Let's Talk About the Fat Horse in the Room. Equine metabolic syndrome is actually quite serious, and it is an issue that we are seeing more and more in horses that we see at the clinic. EMS is a characteristic collection of clinical signs in horses that put them at high risk for developing laminitis, and a key feature of EMS is insulin dysregulation and results from interactions between genetics and environment. Risk factors also include abnormal fat distribution, predisposition to weight gain, and resistance to weight loss, among others. Dr. Kelter's presentation walks horse horse owners through the many layers of EMS, including what we already discussed, that insulin dysregulation, as well as obesity, the clinical signs, and the consequences of unregulated EMS. This syndrome also has aspects such as breed dispositions and genetics, as well as dietary management and medications available. Dr. Kelter talks about it all. It's a heavy topic, but a a topic that many of you are familiar with or are currently battling with and with your own horses so hopefully this lengthy presentation will help you help them be stronger and healthier for it so yeah if you do want to uh, listen that's why we've done this on our podcast alternatively you are welcome to visit our youtube page where we have published the video of this presentation so you can follow along on the slides Thank you guys for listening to these virtual lectures, whether you watch them on YouTube or listen to them on the podcast or you were actually there, quote unquote, live and in person. It was definitely something different for us, but we really enjoyed it and we always enjoy the outreach that it provides for our clients. Okay, so for our last uh, lecture, we have Dr. Travis Kelter. Uh, Dr. Travis Kelter has been with us for two years. Almost two years. He, again, was was also a student at our practice. Um, he is very well known for loving the whole horse. He has an interest in, I think, I don't know if he loves it. He has an interest in medicine. Um, he's well known for nutrition and many other things. And he loves kind of hard to diagnose cases. Well, I don't think he loves them, but he seems to get a lot of them and he does a very good job with them. Uh, Today, Travis is talking about equine metabolic syndrome. This, as Chad said, is something that we are seeing more and more of in our practice almost on the daily. Many of you sent in um, very in-depth questions. The most We had the most questions actually on this subject and also um, the most in-depth questions. So clearly, many of you have a lot of questions regarding equine metabolic syndrome. So I'm going to let Travis take it away. I'm going to go try to find my dog. He's running around this clinic somewhere. Uh, and uh, yeah, we'll go from there. Thanks again. And like I have said before, make sure to drop your comments in that chat, chat box. So at the end of the talk, we can get to them. I'm just going to unmute you, Trav. Okay. Is, can everybody hear me all right? Yeah, you're good. I think. I think. Okay, good. Hi, everybody. Thanks very much for uh, sticking with me till the end. I know it's getting close to dinner time. And uh, also, you've already been through possibly two lectures already. So um, there's going to be some parts of this lecture that are a little bit um, information dense, but I'll try to keep it as light as possible. And the reason I kind of want to talk about this subject is um, it can be a little confusing for veterinarians to figure out. Um, there's some overlap with other uh, t- uh, with other conditions, and there's another very similar 
condition um, with some crossover called PPID or pars pituitary intermedia dysfunction, also known as equine Cushing's. I'll try not to dwell on that too much, but we kind of have to talk about these two things a little bit together. So anyway, um, we'll we'll get right into it, and I guess we'll uh, we'll talk about the fat horse in the room. So. Um, my name is Dr. Travis Kelter, and um, we're going to focus on equine metabolic syndrome today. Um, equine metabolic syndrome, also shortly referred to as EMS, is not exactly a disease in and of itself necessarily, but it's what's considered a collection of risk factors. So um, the key one is insulin dysregulation um, but basically you need that with some other kind of risk factor um, to kind of classify a horse as an equine metabolic syndrome horse and also um, i guess the importance of this is that the, the ultimate consequences worrisome being uh, laminitis that's driven from an endocrinopathic uh, standpoint or basically a metabolic standpoint sorry it's a bit of a tongue twister for me um, so this syndrome results from interactions between uh, genetics and environment and also possibly epigenetics which we'll talk about in, in a little bit here um, so what are the risk factors? The key one here is insulin dysregulation. It's the central consistent feature of equine metabolic syndrome and um, other things that can lead uh, to increased risk and clinical signs are also regional or generalized adiposity or basically an abnormal fat distribution. And uh, the horse can be predisposed to gaining weight, but also may be resistant to trying to take the pounds off. Um, again, this is a little heavy, but um, they can have altered adipokine concentrations, um, which are cell signaling proteins made by fat tissues. Um, and we'll focus in on a couple of those in a bit. So, I feel like I need to go over a few of the definitions and basics that we might throw out there so that you guys don't get too lost. But um, basically, um, we have glucose, which is a simple sugar or can be considered a carbohydrate. Um, it's a very important energy source for metabolism. And this gets converted into either glycogen which is sort of a short-term storage molecule, or it gets uh, turned into triglycerides, which is sort of a form of fat, and a long-term storage molecule. And triglycerides are considered one of, um, a very important predictor in laminitis in ponies. It's still um, to test this as a diagnostic method and use this only and to look at only the triglycerides in the blood is not considered um, diagnostic enough but may be supportive. Um, we have glycogen which is a stored form of glucose um, so it's sort of our energy reserve molecule in animals um, and it's present in the tissues like the liver and muscle tissue and we mobilize this when glucose or energy is needed. Triglycerides, again, are the main uh, constituent of fat or adipose tissue. Those can be thought of as the same. Adipose is the same as fat. Um, and these serve as more of a long-term energy store. 
which again are mobilized when needed. Um, it's the most common form of stored energy in the mammal. So some of this comes from the diet and some is produced in the liver. Finally, we come to insulin because this is a very central important um, molecule and it's an anabolic hormone. Anabolic just means it's kind of a building up hormone um, and it's produced by beta cells of the pancreas. Its function is to regulate carbohydrate, fat, and protein metabolism, and it promotes absorption of glucose from the bloodstream so that when we have a meal and have glucose floating around, insulin kind of knows what to do and it takes care of that and lock, helps lock it up so that we can use it later when we need it. Um, so insulin also has effects on protein synthesis and tissues, and it uh, takes smaller molecules within the bloodstream to build larger molecules for storage in the tissues. And again, this is anabolism. So we'll try to get off some of this heavier stuff in a second, but um, here's the key thing to know about equine metabolic syndrome. And it kind of centers around this insulin dysregulation, and that just basically means it's not working right. So we have an imbalance in the relationship between um, blood glucose, insulin, and lipid or fat concentrations. Um, again, it's a central consistent feature of EMS and insulin resistance is basically when we dump a bunch of insulin into our bloodstream, um, we're not getting the effect, the biological effect that we anticipate. So the cells aren't working properly. So these horses produce insulin, they just can't use it properly. And don't get too bogged down in this um, diagram, but there's three key things um, that are centered around this insulin resistance. And it's hyperinsulinemia, hypertriglyceridemia, and hyperglycemia. Anytime you see hyper in front of something, it just means more of. So we have more fats, more sugar, more insulin. Um, these can be compensatory responses uh, to insulin resistance, but they can also occur um, in the absence of insulin resistance, which again makes your diagnostic process important. Um, so these fancy little um, blobs, I guess, in the top kind of left corner of the screen um, saying increased dietary CHO, that's a short form of carbohydrate and that's supposed to be your gut or the horse's gut. And then just below that, the big kind of darker gray thing is the liver. The top right corner is uh, muscle tissue. And then we have a blobby kind of fat tissue in the bottom. And what this slide is trying to highlight is basically when we take in too much carbohydrates from the diet, and also the type of carbohydrate is going to matter. Um, but we basically, um, they, those have a role in increasing blood glucose. They increase uh, free fatty acids and uh, also increase insulin within the blood. So elevations can occur, again, independent of each other, or we can have elevations in all of these together. And if we leave this unregulated, then it can lead to chronic elevations over a longer period of time. And this can contribute to resistance of insulin um, stimulated glucose uptake. So that's basically trying to pull glucose out of the bloodstream um, and insulins are kind of mediator there. Um, and that happens at the level of the fat tissue and at the level of the skeletal muscle tissue. Um, and then we also get resistance to insulin mediated suppression of triglycerides in the fat tissue. So um, that's, a, I guess, a fancy way of saying uh, that 
we do uh, we're not getting the suppression of those triglycerides or fat molecules that we would have it in a normal horse. And altogether, um, this causes an alteration or a shift in the types of metabolic pathways within the body that are being used. And basically, the dotted lines there are showing kind of more normal pathways that um, get downregulated or they kind of get impaired. And then the bolder line is um, going to the liver is kind of showing a pathway that is being upregulated or enhanced. And so glucose uptake in the liver is not insulin dependent. So this shift in the pathway leads to an increase in blood glucose concentration and increased glucose uptake by the liver. Um, and then insulin then mediates the production of new fats, which is called lipogenesis. Um, and this increased conversion of glucose into the free fatty acids um, are then made into triglycerides. And this is where you can kind of see the problem starting to happen. So if we've taken a normal pathway, shifted it towards the pathway that doesn't require insulin as much to um, mediate this, then we get basically a way around um, our other pathways and we're producing more of the things that we don't want. So if we have chronic increases in the blood glucose or in the free fatty acids in the bloodstream, then we eventually get accumulation of fat in the liver and possibly elsewhere. And this kind of sets up the picture. So um, I guess my take home points here too are you can have insulin dysregulation before you have insulin resistance. And there's an important distinction here um, clinically, because um, I guess dysregulation without an elevation in insulin uh, levels can uh, potentially uh, be indicative of uh, resistance. So I hope that's enough of the heavy stuff. We'll try to get on to the more fun stuff now. So, how do we know if our horse is fat? You know, and this can be a little bit of a tender, uh, tender topic with people. And I don't like bringing it up, um, but I'll show you some more objective means towards the end of you know just keep kind of keeping it real with ourselves. With um, is my horse just a bit of an easy keeper, or maybe we have a sneaky underlying problem here. So bringing this back to obesity, you know, what's the big deal, I guess. Um, obesity uh, is increased fat deposition that has a negative impact on our health. So obesity can be considered a chronic inflammatory state. And the reason being is because you have white blood cells or macrophages that eventually will migrate into these fat tissues with time. And it causes release of inflammatory cells or cytokines. And then on top of that, you have the actual fat cells releasing those uh, cytokines as well. And it used to be thought that this may be a sole cause of equine metabolic syndrome, but not so much anymore. Um, and, but it is a commonly associated feature and it may make insulin dysregulation worse, which is why we're trying to focus on this. So obesity is a common cause of insulin resistance. And when you're obese and have insulin resistance, you're predisposed to um, laminitis. So coming back to those, um, the, uh, those um, certain types of cells um, that we were talking about earlier, one is adiponectin, and this is a protein hormone that's made exclusively from fat tissue. 
and this helps improve insulin sensitivity and reduce inflammation and it's inversely related to fat mass and insulin resistance. So basically decreased concentrations um, are associated with development of insulin dysregulations in the horse. And they found this in horses, especially that were on um, cereal rich diets and horses fed fat rich diets did not show uh, evidence of insulin dysregulation and had normal concentrations. So that's why that's kind of an, an important um, cell to watch, I guess. So again, why do we care? Usually we care and the reason why you're in the vet clinic is because you're seeing some kind of clinical sign with your horse. And with EMS, it can be tricky because again, if we're not kind of watching carefully or we see our horse every day and they're you know, slowly packing on the pounds, sometimes we don't always clue in till they're actually quite advanced. And with EMS, there's not a ton of signs necessarily unless you have a flow on problem. So, um, you know, you might just have an easy keeper or a bigger horse, uh, so obesity, and you can have regional or general adiposity with that. So do we have a high body condition score? Are we overweight? Um, do we have this big crusty neck? Um, are there fat or is there fat in places that you don't typically see it on the horse? Um, again, laminitis, this is the one we all get scared about. Um, so sometimes, you know, it's just, Kind of mild foot tenderness. Do we see the horse shifting back and forth, um, trying to you know offload one limb when that gets a bit sore? Then they have to shift to the other side. And keep in mind, there's other causes of lameness that can you know look the same. Um, do we have hoof or sole sensitivity? Are they pointing a limb out in front of them? Um, do we have growth rings in the feet? Is there heat on the coronary band or an increased digital uh, pulse to the foot? Um, do we have excessive sweating? Those are things you might see that can be related to laminitis and may be related to EMS. Um, another thing and why we talk about Cushing's a little bit at the same time with equine metabolic horses is because they think that there may be an overlap and some horses may have both of these things. So if you're starting to see a long curly hair coat or maybe what's called PUPD or polyuria polydipsia, so drinking more, urinating more, and there's some numbers if you guys care to jot them down if you're monitoring, but over 25 to 30 liters a day, um, is that's considered uh, PUPD in the horse. Um, so if you're starting to see those things, it may be an indicator that you have a horse that is either EMS or, or Cushingoid or both. And nobody wants to hear that they have both, but sometimes it's the reality. So if you see a horse kind of rocking back on its haunches, like uh, the one in the kind of bottom right uh, of the pictures there, um, that can indicate foot pain and they're trying to offload those front limbs, which tend to be the limbs more commonly or the feet more commonly affected by laminitis. Obviously this one in the bottom left is uh, quite a long curly coat and the season looks pretty nice to me there. Summertime, they should probably be shedding out a little bit more than that. And our horse on the top looks pretty darn happy, but just a little bit probably overweight and we're seeing some fat in some weird places. So again, what are the consequences of if we don't regulate this? Well, we get insulin resistance. That's not such a big deal alone, but it's what it leads to. And the big one is again, laminitis or founder, which you can see in the radiograph in the left image. That's a pretty good looking uh, 
foot in the one to the right, we see rotation of that bottom bone in the foot, and that's what we're trying to avoid. And if we let this go on long enough, then that bone can actually rotate through the bottom of the foot, and then we have a real emergency um, and possible euthanasia. So um, besides laminitis or founder, we get the weird fat deposits. We can also have cardiovascular changes like increased blood pressure, and we can have increased heart rates, um, as well as cardiac dimensions or the size of the heart and not the good size of the heart that you want. Um, we can get hyperglycemia, hypertriglyceridemia, so high sugars, high fats, um, which can lead to other critical situations. Um, you may see prepucial, so around um, the genitals or mammary edema in the female, um, and possible inappropriate lactation and subfertility in mares and stallions. Currently, it's unsure if this is purely obesity related or if there is um, an obesity and EMS component uh, with this. And then from a colic standpoint, uh, the more fat that we have kicking around, the more fat in our bloodstream, um, the more likely we can start to develop things like uh, mesenteric lipomas or pedunculated lipomas. Some of you may have experienced this uh, in your colicky horses, but they're basically big fat lumps that hang down from you know parts of the body wall and they can strangle the intestine like in this bottom picture. And you can see that really dark piece of gut that is very compromised and possibly dead. Um, and we'll need surgical um, removal if the horse even makes it. So that's why we're concerned about this condition. It starts off kind of seemingly um, not, not such a bad thing and just our kind of cute fat horse, but it can lead to some pretty, um, some pretty menacing flow on effects. So again, to focus on laminitis and founder, this is considered an emergency. Please seek veterinary care if you think this is happening in your horse. They may need to take radiographs um, and do a physical exam to start to figure that out. Um, and it can be very life-threatening to the horse and something you don't want to deal with. And to manage these and get them back can sometimes be very long roads to recovery. If you see in the bottom left-hand picture, um, those are growth rings in the feet. And what that indicates is uneven periods of growth, and that can be linked to inflammation within the foot that again can be linked to things like Cushing's or equine metabolic syndrome. Is this an okay pace for everyone so far, I think? Everybody's following? Okay. Um, again, laminitis and founder. So that top left picture kind of shows you a bone that's been rotated down through the foot and we can appreciate how close that is to coming through the sole. Um, that can also lead to bacterial infections and abscesses in the foot. Um, and if bad enough, a horse can actually walk right out of their hoof. So um, obese horses are at a higher risk for laminitis and founder, which is again why we focus on, on problem. Is there an underlying problem like EMS? So you can see a non-laminitic horse in this first set of images on the left. And then you can see what's called a sinker. Um, so not all of the horses rotate um, when they have laminitis, some of them just sink. Um, and then, you know, we have uh, rotation in the bottom and you can appreciate that those little white lines closer to the coronary band are um, closer together than the ones as we move down the uh, foot, which are becoming further apart from the dorsal football. 
So what do we mean when we say regional adiposity? Here's the things I look for on a, her on a horse and here's kind of the key areas. So this guy is looking, uh, looking a little festively plump out in, out in his field and we can see up top um, he has quite uh, a cresting to the neck. Not all horses are this dramatic so sometimes you have to tune into some more subtle fat depositions. Um, another key area is right in front of the shoulder blade um, and also right behind the elbow. And then um, another place they really like to put it is kind of around the tail base and in geldings especially. Um, you can look at their sheath um, and some of them have um, excess fat that they like to put around their sheath, particularly as they age. So that's what we mean when we say regional adiposity and those are kind of my hot zones. So people usually want to know, you know, will, will my horse get this? And um, we don't have a crystal ball all the time, so sometimes we uh, don't always know. And there's limited data actually on overall prevalence of equine metabolic syndrome. Um, some of the components or the kind of risk factors have been individually um, analyzed. It does seem to be more common in inactive animals. Um, and so there's an exercise benefit on regulation of insulin and in decreasing the um, primary endocrinopathic laminitis more likely uh, to occur in British native breeds they found versus Nordic breeds of horses. Higher insulin concentrations are often found in older versus younger horses. So monitoring might be more um, important as our horse ages versus our young horse. Um, there doesn't seem to be any difference that they found between males and females. Um, don't forget your donkeys because they are quite predisposed to this. So I, I feel like donkeys are sometimes the, uh, the pals that hang out with our horses in the paddock and they're fun and they're there, but we don't always um, remember the simple things with them and they are still very prone to conditions like this. Um, Prevalence, uh, so when, when I was talking about um, some of the individual things have been looked at, again, focusing in on that hyperinsulinemia or excess insulin in the bloodstream, they have looked at that and there's an Australian study that found the prevalence to be about 27% of ponies. Um, a couple US studies that found 22% of horses had hyperinsulinemia. Um, and another USA study um, indicating that about 18% of healthy non-laminitic horses were found to also have this. Um, looking at the prevalence of obesity, there's a Canadian study that kind of estimates it somewhere between the 8 to 29% mark. And just to bring this back to something Louisa said at the beginning of the presentation, this is something that we talk about quite commonly. And just about daily, either because we suspect it or because we're actually seeing a horse that fits and we've tested um, and they've been diagnosed with it. Um, so if we're, you know, seeing somewhere between roughly 10 to 30 percent of Canadian horses with obesity problems, and we know that that is a very critical factor in equine metabolic syndrome, then, you know, basically we can say that for all the horses that walk through the day on an average um, day through our clinic, you know, we might be seeing anywhere from one to three out of 10 horses. So, you know, between 
three vets here who sometimes can see, you know, maybe up to 60, 70 horses on a, on a very busy day between us, you know, we're seeing quite a substantial number of potential cases, which is why I kind of wanted to talk to you about this condition, not because it's particularly um, interesting. <laughs> I think there's some more sexy presentations, but anyway. Um, and then breed differences in insulin sensitivity. Um, so reduced insulin sensitivity of ponies um, and Andalusians they found versus standard breads. So again, you have a little bit more of an athletic course. But I think what happens here is when you look at Andalusians and ponies, they're in some very rough, very um, sparse habitats. So they actually have to move around a lot and search to get um, to get enough feed, and this is a common thing for horses in, in the wild, um, to meet their metabol metabolic demands in a day. So when we start taking these breeds, domesticating them, and feeding them quite high levels of nutrition, which in some respects is a good thing, um, they're such efficient um, energy converters that then when we kind of hit them with this huge energy load, this is what can send their insulin index and their glycemic index kind of out of control. And I think is maybe why they, you, you see these spurred on in these breeds a little more easily than um, an athletic, um, well-domesticated breed like the standard bred or the thoroughbred. Um, so it's also important to consider uh, breeds with level of activity. So again, don't forget our uh, Shetland ponies, our miniature horses, our donkeys. They're not exactly uh, typically exercised in our general management um, on farm. So if we have horses like that, that we know are not going to be exercised regularly or, or um, you know, forcing themselves to go through a lot of activity, then we may want to pay particular attention to what we're feeding them and, and how we're managing them uh, from a diet standpoint. Um, okay. So, oh, and just to mention the diponectin um, idea again. Uh, so circulating a diponectin concentrations were found to be lower um, in aged horses versus young horses. And remember, we want... Um, High this is kind of a good molecule, so we kind of want higher concentrations of that. So um, again, our aged horses seem to be a little bit more predisposed, and this is consistent with an age-associated insulin dysregulation. Alrighty, so again, breed predispositions and individual factors. So there's studies that have been, and I think this one's a little bit unfair, but um, you know, horses more likely to be obese versus a thoroughbred. Well, you have quite an athletic animal there that you're comparing to, so keep that in mind. But they found that quarter horses, warm bloods, draft types, cob types, again, your British native breeds, um, Rocky Mountain horses, and some of the walking horses um, were more likely to uh, be predisposed than the thoroughbred. Also, your good doers or your easy keepers, you'll hear some people refer to their horses as. Um, so, you know, pleasure riding horses that may not receive as much um, exercise as a performance horse, horses that are retired or not ridden at all, um, or more dominant animals in the pack may be pushing others around and may be feeding more or eating more. Um, so this, this kind of big 
Percheron looking guy in the bottom there. He seems pretty menacing. I wouldn't want to miss with him if I was in a pack, but uh, so watch out for those if you're running a herd. Um, and then pregnancy, um, there's pregnancy associated insulin dysregulation, um, which can occur in mares and they do not have to be an equine metabolic syndrome horse. So again, important to watch body condition and nutritional status of our brood mares. Um, because if they um, already might be predisposed to insulin dysregulation for the sole fact of we've, we're getting them pregnant, if we add equine metabolic syndrome on top of that, you may be setting yourself up for a problem. Okay, and again, just genetics. They have found a genetic predisposition with evidence in the Arabian, and um, there does seem to be some higher genetic risk breeds. So your pony breeds, your Andalusians, some of your gated breeds, um, Morgans, miniature horses, and warm bloods. So coming to that idea of epigenetics, so some of you might be kind of scratching your head. Um, it's not an everyday term that we use, um, but epigenetics can be thought of as a, a change in an organism caused by modifications of gene expression. Expression is the key here because there's not an actual change to the genetic code. It's just the way that the genes that are already there are being shown. So um, some studies indicate that the nutritional status and body condition score of the mare during pregnancy may actually influence the foal later in life. Um, and I believe they looked at some embryo transfer mares. So keep in mind embryo transfer, that mare is housing the foal, but she really shouldn't be contributing um, genetics to that foal. She's, she's just the oven, so to speak. So um, how are we having an influence there on the foal? Well, this is where epigenetics and, and a nutritional component may come in. So um, some studies indicate that the nutritional status or body condition score of the mare during the pregnancy may have effects on the reproductive, orthopedic, and metabolic response of the foal later in life. Um, so, and they thought that these changes may be set up in utero in those, in those recipient mares. Um, suppression of certain genes or genotypes due to epigenetic factors, so like the diet, may trigger phenotypic expression or what we see on the outside um, of underlying genetic predispositions and it can um, they found a link with uh, clinical laminitis so um, i just put up there they say you are what mom eats so consider your brood mares as potentially um, um, having a genetic um, influence and epigenetic influence on your foal possibly developing um, laminitis in in their lifetime um, so coming to diagnosis how do we kind of figure this out so it can be quite um, confusing and sometimes you need multiple different tests um, or retesting to figure out the entire picture this diagram kind of shows you the quick and dirty of how to diagnose um, the lab that I often send a lot of blood work to is through the University of Guelph Animal Health Laboratory um, Department. And they tend, the reason I like to send a lot of panels there, and particularly horses I think are EMS over Cushing's, is because they look at a few different things. Um, and I'll show you a panel in a minute, but they give a little bit Basically, we think we have a horse that has EMS. So what do we do? We look at the clinical signs. So, you know, is there an indication to start pulling diagnostics? So are we seeing laminitis? 
that's often what people will call you for to come look at their horse. They, they're seeing foot tenderness or they're off or they're lame um, or they're down. They can't get up at all. Um, or, you know, like we just have this fat horse that, you know, I've done everything. I'm kind of racking my brain. I've reduced the feed. They're in a dirt pen. You know, what, what's going on? Why can't I get the weight off this horse? So we, we basically, we've got the signs. So then what we do, we pull a, um, we pull a blood sample and we take, um, we test the insulin is the key thing here. Um, these horses, or they, they used to say that you need a fasting sample. They say that you don't necessarily because there can actually be interferences by fasting them. So um, basically we pull that sample. If the insulin level is increased beyond the normal limits, then we are relatively certain that we have a diagnosis of EMS and we manage it accordingly. Um, if it is not increased, this doesn't mean that your horse does not have EMS. Um, it could mean that they are truly negative. So if there's a lack of other information or signs, then we may say, hey, we need to look at something else. We've got the wrong problem here. Or if nothing's too dramatic, we say just hold off, monitor your horse and um, maybe retest at a later date. Um, or if no, if there's no recurrence or return of signs, then, you know, maybe look the other way. Um, there are other tests that you can incorporate to, again, add more support. Um, and so there's a stimulation test or an oral sugar test that you can perform. And then that may increase those levels above the normal level that's not seen with your resting insulin. And again, that may indicate a positive result and then you manage. Um, the thing that I'd like to bring up here is that um, if you are kind of in this middle ground territory where it's like it's not a hard no, but we haven't got a, a positive blood sample, then I would recommend pulling a CBC biochem, which is a general blood panel, because it may put you on to a different path that you, you see an abnormality on that blood work that you say, hey, um, actually, you know, I thought it was EMS, but I'm seeing something that I couldn't, you know, that's lurking below the surface that I, I wasn't aware of before. Let's go down that route. Or um, if we do find a, they, they may truly be positive for EMS, but um, what uh, if they have another disease process going on, then it may make the management of EMS more difficult. So if you have some other kind of systemic illness or body-wide disease, it may be working against your medical program or, or your dietary program. And that may be the horse that's like, you know, I'm kind of getting somewhere, but just not what I expect. That's the importance of pulling a different blood sample. Um, and then sometimes, you know, there's weird cases and we need a few other um, laboratory tests or we need, you know, if they are in a laminitic episode, we do need x-rays to see what that coffin bone is doing in the bottom of the foot. Are we in good shape? Is it rotating? Is it sinking? Do we need to take more drastic measures? So this is what a panel looks like and uh, I'll, I've whited out the names and uh, I won't mention names as they could be listening uh, to this, po uh, this podcast. Um, but, or not podcast, I guess, front video, I don't know, um, but the, um, if you look at this panel here, this is from the University of Guelph, and we're looking at, um, three different, uh, three different components, so to speak. So we're looking at ACTH, or adrenocorticotropic hormone, um, that's kind of a releasing hormone, and that's the one we really focus in on for PPID, or your Cushing's horses. 
um, that is not always raised in a EMS horse unless there's an overlap of both conditions together. Um, so that's one of the components. Glucose is another component. I kind of, I'm not too worked up about that because there's so many different things that can influence glucose levels in the body throughout the day. Um, literally the time of day, when we last ate, what we last ate. So it's not a very like predictive measure for me, but sometimes particularly um, not very common in the horse, but if you think there's that they're also a diabetic horse, that becomes very important. Otherwise, most of the time, I kind of don't look at it too much. Um, but between the ACTH and the insulin, that's really what I need. Um, and so if you see this horse here, um, ACTH, pretty uh, normal and within normal limits. Uh, then we come down to the glucose. I'm not sure if you can see this cursor on, on your screens, but um, the glucose here is again within normal limits. Then we come down here and we see the insulin is, you know, over double the upper end of the reference inter interval. And um, this horse is actually, so again, coming to the, the age, we are an older horse that fits with our signs. This horse presented in a laminitic episode. Um, it's had foot flares before. Um, and we have uh, tested, this is, um, we pulled this panel before on this horse and it was elevated. This is further elevated, meaning that even with some of the medical interventions that we're taking, she hasn't, she's had difficulty regulating. Um, and it, it actually increased the second time from the, or from the first time that we pulled the, the sample. Um, so this is kind of what a panel look like, looks like, and these are the things I'm cluing into with particular, um, with particular interest to insulin in the EMS horse. So this was taken from the equine endo uh, endocrinology group, and it's just a simple Venn diagram kind of showing, um, showing different groups of horses with different risk factors. So we kind of have, we have equine metabolic syndrome horses in this, um, this red arrow or red circle here. Um, they often have insulin dysregulation, but might look skinny. And then we have a fat group of horses um, that are overweight and uh, have PPID. And then we have just strict PPID um, horses only. Um, and then sometimes we have these intersections where we may see a horse who could be either obese or lean, but have both PPID and EMS. So just keep in mind that we don't like to overcomplicate things as vets. My teachers always told me, you know, keep it simple if you can. That's and common things happen commonly, but sometimes there are um, there are other factors that can that can complicate a diagnosis or lead to multiple diagnoses. So. Um, Here's probably what most of you want to know about, and we're finally getting out of some of the, the information-dense um, slides and getting into the more fun stuff. So how do we take care of these horses? So um, there's, there's three kind of things that I see are super important, and that is dietary management, your exercise program, and then do we need any medications to help us out? So through dietary management, the key thing here is um, limiting energy restriction and limit the total dry matter intake to the horse. 
So here we want to limit our grains, we want to li limit our cereal-based feeds and you know fruits and vegetables or treats if you're feeding them that may be high in NSC or non-structural carbohydrate uh, content. So those grains, those cereal bases, they often have a lot more uh, carbohydrates and often um, simple sugars in them, which are broken down very fast, lead to a huge, um, in a quick increase in blood glucose and therefore insulin levels. Um, so we want to, uh, we kind of want to avoid those things. So um, avoid high fat and high energy contents. This can be a little confusing. We want certain fats in there, but um, yeah, we just we don't want a, a real rich, um, easily broken down diet. So this usually leads to restricted grazing. Um, sometimes we have to limit the pasture turnout, um, especially during that first kind of um, maybe month and a half to three months or six to twelve weeks of dietary restriction. Um, and uh, the time of day that we allow a horse to graze uh, may be very important. Uh, the common thing is we often turn them out into our, uh, you know, a dirt pen or our, our safest paddock or lowest, you know, um, driest kind of grass paddock. Um, we can put a grazing muzzle on and um, these can be quite effective. So um, horses can consume up to 0.9% of their uh, body mass in three hours of grazing. And, and the careful thing to do here is be careful if you're going to fast a horse or limit or restrict them. And then if you are using turnout times, versus not going to eat all day, let me gorge now. So they can actually make up for what they lost in their restricted time of grazing in a very short amount of time. So just keep that in mind. Um, so we can limit dry matter intake when they're on pasture through using a grazing muzzle and we can possibly decrease the feed intake somewhere between 77 to 83%. So it can be quite um, effective. It can also just help increase the grazing time. They have to work harder to get the food. Um, can increase the exercise and movement to graze. You know, they might kind of get frustrated as they pick through the first, you know, taller pieces of grass and can't get quite down and then they're like, oh, they move on. So that's that's promoting them to kind of see the whole paddock instead of just stay in one spot and gorge. Um, also keep in mind, you have some very tricky horses and um, speaking with, I haven't seen this personally, but um, speaking with um, a, a specialist we work with quite a bit, she has seen um, a horse eat multiple flakes of hay through a grazing muzzle in a matter of minutes. So some of them are just tricky. So if you have that kind of horse, then, you know, maybe the grazing muzzle isn't the best thing and maybe you really do have to just keep them in a dirt pen. Um, so we also want to be careful with how much we restrict them because this can have other health consequences and it can also, uh, we don't want to set them up poorly and there's a safe amount of energy restriction. So our aim is to have sort of um, half to 1% of um, body uh, mass loss per kind of week. Um, we want careful monitoring. We want to um, meet the targets, but we don't want to exceed them. So more is not necessarily better, you know, faster weight loss, um, more dramatic weight loss. That's not always a good thing. And especially when you're taking fat horses and then putting them into sort of, you know, restricted or starvation type. Um, and we don't want to starve them, but you know, those 
more similar kind of scenarios, you can lead to mobilization of fat stores, which can be an emergency situation too, called refeeding syndrome. So um, you usually don't have that with some of these fat guys, but it is something that's on the radar. Um, so we want to introduce diet restriction kind of slowly over a one to two week period and gradually reduce. And I just put this picture in here just because, you know, this is kind of what we're trying to aim to do sometimes. We want that kind of paddock. Um, again, with dietary management, um, we want to try to aim for a forage-based ration. Um, and again, consider the nutrient comp uh, composition here. So consider either zero grazing or feed hay only. Um, and when I say grazing, I mean on sort of more lush grasses. So for our forage, 1.4 to 1.7% of their body mass um, and approximately 1%, uh, so about 1% of their body mass is what we wanna be feeding the, these horses. If you can test the hay, and I recommend that, um, then the non-structural carbohydrate, um, which is basically your, your, um, your simple sugars and things like that, as opposed to your fiber component of the plant, we want that to be under about 10 to 12%. And if they happen to look at the fruit tans as well, um, then we want that kind of under a 4% um, mark. And this helps limit the response of insulin. Um, so again, yeah, you, you do that by testing the hay. Some of you are probably familiar with that. Um, so no haylage, um, so there's, they've shown that there's a greater insulinemic response or, um, higher insulin levels after feeding this people will feed it cause there's often greater palatability, um, which means that the horse will try to eat more of it. And if we're, we know we're kind of, um, promoting this higher insulin response, that's what we're really trying to get away from in these horses. Um, so how do we do that and reduce the um, the glycemic index and that insulin response? A lot of people do it by soaking hay. Um, what this does is leach the sugars out of the plant and um, it helps reduce the glycemic and insulinemic responses. Um, I've read various sort of numbers with this. Get the hay wet <laughs> is, is my tip here. Um, it can't just, it has to sit in there. You can't just wet it. All that is going to do is reduce dusts and molds and things like that for your respiratory type horses. You have to let it sit there for a little bit, but, um, you know, they say ideally one to two hours soak in warm conditions, um, depending on what, what region or what climate you're in. Um, the more we let it soak, we have to start worrying about mold development and, and a lot of um, our performance horses also have respiratory conditions. So we don't want to let it soak too, too long. So they've also said that cold water for 60 minutes or hot water for 30 minutes will remove um, a large percent of the water soluble uh, carbohydrates. Um, that's a recommendation by the Kentucky Equine uh, research group. So they do a lot of nutritional research in the horse. Um, and this helps decrease non-structural carbohydrate content. Um, and we can also consider alfalfa because it has a high protein content and quite a good mineral content and it's pretty easily digestible for the horse. Also from a gut standpoint, it's um, got a lot of calcium, which helps buffer stomach acid for your ulcer horses. Um, so we want to minimize and eliminate the grain-based feeds that we have. Um, 
So we want to limit the concentrates to sort of a maximum of about 0.2 to uh, 0.4% body weight per day. Um, and consider feeding smaller, more frequent feeds. So if, you know, sometimes we do want that energy boost or, you know, we, we do, um, you know, depending on what type of horse you have, you might have a racehorse and want, you know, to feed some oats or, you know, to, to kind of heat them up a little bit before a race. That's not all bad. I'm not saying never do that. Um, if you have, if you have a horse like that, who's an EMS horse. Um, so how do we kind of give them those boosts, um, but not, put them into, you know, a laminitic episode um, from the carbohydrates in the, in the grain. Well, we can just do that by feeding less, but maybe through a few times throughout the day. So is timing important? And yes, it is. So horses grazing during the afternoon can ingest two to four times more sugar than those grazing in the morning or night while eating the same amount of grass. So, um, an, or a little like memory tip that I kind of use is uh, sugars in the plant will follow uh, the sun. So in my opinion, kind of the early morning is probably the safest time, but really morning or night. Um, and that's because the sugars in the morning are low down in the stem of the plant. As the sun comes out, it draws them up the stem of the plant. Um, so the horse doesn't have to get quite down as far. Um, to eat the grass to get the same level of sugar that it does in the morning. It really has to get down close to that root. Um, where, and, and my logic, I guess, is that um, if we're low down in the root in the morning and then through the day as it gets drawn up, that's the unsafe time. Then at nighttime, we're getting safer, but we just haven't had the time to fully come back down to the root. So unless you're late night feeding or, you know, sort of very early morning feed, then, you know, I'd say probably morning time is your safest, but really morning night. Um, environmental conditions are also important um, to consider with, um, is my horse at risk of going on pasture? And um, the key one, I think in our climate here is after that first frost. Um, frost and other environmental conditions can stress the plant. Um, if the plant gets stressed, they tend to release more sugars. Um, that may give your horse a higher sort of sugar dose. So. Um, Either again, just turn them out at the safer times of the day if you have to, um, or you know consider keeping them restricted during those um, environmental uh, environmentally stressful times and use some kind of supplementary feed. And I don't mean concentrates and things like that, but just a hay that's tested as opposed to lush pasture. Um, season can also influence sugar content. So spring. Uh, you know, our grasses are growing rapidly, they're growing fast. That's the nice greenest time of the year. Um, and it tends to be the highest in fruit tan levels. So it's a quite a dangerous time to let an EMS horse graze on pasture. Midsummer, we're heating up, we're um, drying out the grasses more, we're taking some of the sugars out of there. Um, there's more indigestible content in the grass. It tends to be the lowest in um, time of the year for sugar and one of the more safer times. Fall, variable um and then winter it's alberta you're pretty safe until most of the year <laughs> that we don't have grass <laughs> so um to supplement or not to supplement um i saw that there is maybe a few questions on this so please please be kind on me um but when you're soaking the hay you are going to leach some of that vitamin in 
content, the sugar content safe, just balance it with, um, and sometimes the protein leaches out too, um, which is why it may be a good idea to use an alfalfa that's already a little bit higher in protein. So if we lose a bit, you're still at a good level. Um, so just try, um, a key thing is to supplement with a, a vitamin mineral balancer. Omega-3 supplementation has been shown to aid in reduction of insulin dysregulation in the horse. So there was a study performed by Colorado State University looking at both flax oil and marine sources of omega-3 polyunsaturated fatty acids, that's what that PUFA means, <laughs> um, with positive effects on decreasing insulin resistance in, they looked at 21 non-pregnant mares. Um, so shameless plug here, but uh, whoever was lucky to get that Equiflax giveaway, um, if you have an EMS horse, you may be helping out there. So they have shown that flax oil is, um, is helpful in reducing um, insulin resistance. Um, but you know, other products that are omega-3 heavy are good too. So they were looking at really the omega-3 content. Flax oil just happened to be one of the ones that was studied. So um, I throw Campresco in there too, because it is also one that we carry in the clinic. It's a very good product um, and is also omega-3 um, heavy. So, you know, if you're already on that oil, you don't necessarily have to go changing things up um, if it's working for you. Um, magnesium, chromium, and short-chain fructooligosaccharides, which is sort of a prebiotic. Um, there's some support there in improving insulin regulation, uh, but currently a little bit of conflicting evidence. Um, they have found that feeds enriched with uh, spirulina algae and algerone, or, which is a wheat bran protein, may have some positive effects. So uh, again, omegas from the marine sources like the algae um, may improve glucose transport from the blood into the cells. Um, so they've looked at, there's been studies looking at cinnamon, L-carnitine, psyllium. Um, so far in the horse, they have demonstrated little benefit um, and yeah hasn't been found to be very useful. I think there are some studies that have looked at cinnamon. Uh, the study I've looked at in the horse is um, a 2012 study so not terribly old. There may be newer research that I'm just unaware of um, but yeah they didn't find a very promising result with cinnamon. Um, However, I think they have in rats and mice found some effect on, on improving insulin sensitivity. So can we extrapolate that to the horse? I don't know yet. Um, and yeah, L-carnitine and psyllium. Psyllium's um, also a commonly used fiber um, and L-carnitine, uh, it's, it's involved in metabolic pathways, um, but also found in some supplements. So um, I think I think the best I can say is that the verdict is out. Will you do harm to your horse by supplementing them with this? Probably not. Um, it's just, are you using your money the most effectively? Up to you. <laughs> um, so now we come to exercise management. This is also um, very important, but when you do this or how much um, is also a critical um, implication here. So exercise improves insulin sensitivity and helps reduce inflammation. Um, even in the absence of weight loss, this is to be found in humans, um, not necessarily the horse specifically. 
um, introduction of exercise dependent um, on lamellar or foot stability. So what I mean here is we're not going to go exercising a laminitic horse that's in a an active flare. That's a no, don't do that, please. And they probably won't. Some of them don't move. They don't want to move. They're in such pain. Um, so, but we don't want to, by exercising them, further compromise the stability of those, um, of the sensitive and insensitive lamina. They basically kind of interlink. And as we get inflammation in the foot, they start to pull apart. And um, then we get structural damage. So if we start running a horse around with that damage that's already setting up there, they could very much run out of their foot. So um, yeah, please don't do that. Um, so yeah, so one of my, my things is they can't have any current or recent laminitic episode. Um, we want a gradual introduction to exercise. So consider the horse's fitness level. Um, I feel like I heard through the door, Becky, earlier, you know, like if your horse has been sitting around, don't expect them to be an athlete in a day. Um, you know, work them, work them into it. Be fair to them. You'll be less frustrated and they probably will be too. Um, so for non-laminitic horses with insulin, uh, insulin dysregulation, I found some minimum recommendations for you who are numbers people. Um, low to moderate intensity exercise is what we want. So this is sort of a canter to a, a fast canter. Uh, it can be ridden or unridden. And they're saying at least 30 minutes, um, probably somewhere five times plus a week. Um, and our aim here is to try to get their heart rate up to between 130 to 170 beats per minute for your average horse. And where their resting heart rate um, should be is sort of probably between the 20, um, 24, 28 mark to up to about uh, maybe 40, 48 beats a minute for a normal horse. That's a good resting heart rate. Um, so after the exercise, we want to see it kind of elevate to that or, you know, elevate to that level during this period of exercise. Um, so I don't know if any of you have heart rate monitors, some of you know, the endurance riders might, or um, just any of you, you know, you can exercise and then listen to the heart rate right away. Um, if you give them a few minutes, it will often come down relatively quickly. So this is for the people who can listen to a heart rate or actually monitor theirs during exercise. Um, if we've had a previously laminated course with um, a recovered or stable foot, again, x-rays may be your um, guide here as to when it's safe to introduce exercise. Um, and talk to your farrier as well. Um, they're very good with stuff like this. <clears throat> um, but again, the minimum recommendation, we're not trying to get um, that higher intensity uh, exercise because again, they have had this laminitic flare. So we want to aim for a lower intensity. This is more of a fast trot to maybe an unridden canter. Um, again, aiming for over 30 minutes, but dialed down a little bit to maybe three times or so a week with careful monitoring of signs for lameness. Because, you know, sometimes we may be just about there with our laminitic episode. And again, horses recovery times are variable here. So we may think we're good. But if you start seeing a lameness or foot tenderness recur, just stop and call your vet. Um, do you need a vet call right away? Uncertain, but they can help field your questions and concerns. Um, and again, here we're aiming for a heart rate somewhere more between 110 to 150 beats a minute. Um, our medical management. 
the one I'm really gonna, um, so, so I think I saw a question or something about, you know, if it's not diet, if it's not exercise, what are we left with? Well, that's where your vet comes in. Um, and medical management uh, can be very important and very critical to helping kickstart um, your, your path to success here. So um, the common one that I use is called uh, levothyroxine. It, um, I'll often use it in horses that are resistant to weight loss. It is what's considered extra label, or it means that we just, um, we use it for different um, uses than it's maybe recommended for. Um, and sometimes that's just, you know, it's recommended for certain uses in the human or another animal that isn't um, recommended in the horse, but there's no indication to say, no, we can't do that. It's just, we have to caution you that we're using this a little bit differently and there may not be a safety study or, you know, extensive research to back up its, um, its efficacy or its use. Um, so levothyroxine is a thyroid hormone. So by giving a horse this, we're basically trying to kickstart their metabolism. And the one that we use in the clinic here, we get it from a compounding pharmacy and it looks like this here in the top right corner. Um, you'll go through a tub for one horse for sure. And then, um, Often, sometimes you need uh, a couple rounds of it. Some horses that are particularly resistant, they say that you may need to treat for up to sort of about the four to six month mark um, to, get, to get yourself to where you need. Um, it's a one time a day administration is generally what I recommend. And the effects are we're gonna increase metabolic rate and therefore accelerate our weight loss. We're going to decrease our uh, body mass and neck circumference. I'll talk a little bit about the neck in a minute. Um, and then we're going to increase the sensitivity to insulin. So like our flax oil, like we're trying to sensitize them. Again, they use it right. Um, so uh, we want to implement diet and exercise changes at the same time. This should not just be an excuse to not um, to not change the diet and to not um, to not exercise the horse. Eventually, you'll be disappointed if that's the way you're going to use it um, in its sole effort. Um, another drug that I haven't personally used um, but is reported to be used in the horse is what's called metformin. Um, oh, and sorry, Thyro-L is a product that is available in the United States um, that is made for horses that they talk about. So sometimes um, there are um, on-label products versus extra-label. Um, it just may depend on where you live and what you can access. Um, sorry, moving back to metformin, um, we have... Um, uh, severe insulin dysregulation kind of cases um, when we have optimum management otherwise. So this may require two to three times a day um, administration to your horse. Uh, you want to ideally give it 30 to 60 minutes before feeding. Um, oral bioavailability uh, bio is poor in the horse. Um, and the way that this, so there's not a lot of uptake by the horse, but the way that this works and the reason that this could still be an effective treatment um, is because it can work directly on enterocytes or cells of the gut um, by decreasing um, glucose absorption by those cells and therefore directly in, um, affecting the insulin response. So it's called what's basically an anti-hyperglycemic. Uh, so it helps prevent a rise in blood sugar. And um, 
the reason why I find it interesting that I don't care if it's absorbed in the horse that much is because if it has a local effect, what they think is happening is it's actually sort of blocking glucose from being absorbed by the gut. So it's coming out the back end. And if we're not absorbing glucose into the uh, bloodstream, then insulin doesn't have to be released because you don't have this huge increase to then mop up and take care of and store in your tissues. Um, so I would reserve this for horses with marked um, increases in their oral sugar test, or if you go down those more dynamic forms of um, diagnosing your horse or the ones that you're like, oh, they got a normal blood result, but I still think they're an equine metabolic horse, um, then you may want to try stuff like this in those cases. Um, obviously, if they're laminitic at the same time, you need to address this. This is very important. And this, you know, becomes more important than, you know, worrying about um, all the rest, because this is the thing that's going to take your horse down first. Um, just common ways that we manage laminitis, if you haven't been through this before, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs or NSAIDs like bute, banamine, prevacox, those types of things. Um, basically, we're trying to give them some kind of anti-inflammatory and some kind of pain relief. Um, so you can cold hose or ice the feet, again, that has sort of um, an anti-inflammatory effect and some other effects. Um, we use a drug sometimes called isoxaprine, which helps um, increase blood flow to the foot, because if you've compromised um, blood flow, um, then you, you want to try to get that back so that you're delivering oxygen and nutrient to, to the foot. Um, because we, ha we can have that rotation or that sinking, soul support becomes very important um, or, or cushioning. So um, if you can't get a farrier out right away or, you know, uh, wh whatever the situation in COVID, <laughs> um, then we have, uh, we can deep bed um, the stall uh, or some people will use sand in the stall. Um, you can use soft ride boots or similar. So things we carry in the clinic here. Um, these are soft rides down here. These are the cloud boots, very similar kind of design. Um, some people prefer one to the other. Some find uh, their horses are more comfortable in one form or the other. Kind of up to you, just know those options are available. If you really can't get somewhere and get a pair of, st of uh, soft ride boots, um, you, people can tape styrofoam on the feet. Um, really, something will help. So um, those are some other options. Talk to your farrier. Um, you're probably going to need corrective shoeing, especially if that bone has rotated or sunk in the bottom of the foot. So they are very critical um, part of this puzzle. Um, and then if they have already rotated, because um, we're a little behind the ball, then um, you may need to elevate that heel to take some of the strain off of the deep digital flexor tendon um, and, and prevent further rotation of P3 or that coffin bone. And what I'll quickly just show you here. Um, so what I'm talking about here is when that bone starts to rotate, your deep digital flexor tendon runs down here and it actually hooks onto the bottom of this coffin bone like a little pulley. So if, you, if you're already having rotation here and we're having inflammation and kind of a wedge form here and then you have a, basically a big elastic trying to pull you this way, then you may make the problem even worse. So please, please incorporate a farrier into this process if you have a horse that's actively um, laminitic. 
Um, and then if they get other problems from, because maybe they've been down all day and we didn't notice because we were at work or, you know, things like that, they can have other problems. So we may treat those symptoms accordingly based on the problem they have. Um, another thing that I found a little bit interesting that I realized lately is um, Pergolide uh, or Percend is the, the brand name of the drug. Um, this is a drug licensed for PPID or equine Cushing's and is really the mainstay of treatment for those horses. If you really want to win that situation, they basically just need this drug in addition to the other things. Um, but this is a once daily administration. It tends to be one pill a day. Complicated cases may require more. Uncomplicated or lighter, littler horses may require less. Um, sometimes you have to increase the dose as time goes on. Um, but um, equine Cushing's is a little bit different. It's a problem in the brain. And so I was kind of like, well, how is this drug kind of working for the EMS horses? Because some of them you put this, them on and this really does help them regulate it. And I think there's one important thing to not forget, and that's that we can still have EMS and PPID at the same time. So your horses may be one of those weird ones um, that uh, has both. Maybe that's why the drug works. But then there was also another study done um, and they found that it may also help uh, sensitize them to insulin. So other um, dopamine agonists, which is what this is, have been shown to improve insulin regulation and suppress insulin concentrations in other species. This is maybe how it's working in the horse and in these pure e EMS horses that don't have PPID. So sometimes we just gotta throw them on it, watch and see, and see if it really helps our, um, our management. Um, so the effects, so it may have an independent effect on insulin dynamics in the horse um, and typically improves um, the regulation um, in PPID horses. Um, so really keep in mind here uh, that when we're dealing with hormones and probably processes that we, we won't notice right away because the signs are sneaky, um, so when we do notice they're a little bit further um, or more advanced cases, they say that horses on this medication can take three to six months to fully regulate and respond. I tend to find that you'll start to see improvements within sort of maybe the four to eight week time frame. Um, but if you're like, why am I paying for this? It's not working. Um, make sure you've given it an honest shot uh, because you may have horse, uh, a horse that is just slower to respond. And again, if they've been dealing with this for a long time, I think it's just reasonable to expect that it's going to take a longer time to respond to medication as well. So um, this is where you may need to repeat a blood sample, you know, at the same time that you pulled the first one the next year, or if you're really concerned about the horse, maybe, you know, once at the end of three to six months of your initial treatment and see if your insulin levels are improving um, or regulating better. Um, I just mentioned these other couple things because they're kind of fun emerging research, but there's other sodium glucose co-transporter um, inhibitors that may be shown to increase glucose loss through the kidney or the urine. Um, preliminary studies assessing safety and efficacy in horses um, are being performed, but um, more research is needed at this time. And there's another one, a sweet taste receptor inhibitor. And so basically, 
Um, they're trying to reduce insulin and glucose response to oral carbohydrates. Um, again, looking at other species, maybe minor beneficial effects recently shown in horses, but again, we can't recommend anything yet. We can monitor body condition score. This is not the same as weight. Um, so we can, for weight, we can grab a weigh tape um, and there's uh, various reported ways as to where to measure and how to measure. If you happen to be um, going to the clinic that uh, has a weigh scale or um, hopefully not, but an emergency situation in a full um, hospital, they often have a scale. You can always throw the horse on there just to keep an eye on things every once in a while. Uh, the weigh tape's the easiest thing to use at home. Make sure it's the same person kind of doing the measurement and the same way of measuring each time. Body condition score. And this is, this is where um, I think people's feelings can get hurt sometimes because they're like, my horse isn't, you know, fat. And you're like, well, how are you measuring? And then they're like, well, I look at them. And I was like, well, okay, how do you look at them? And, you know, again, are we looking at them the same way all the time or are we just kind of going yeah my horse looks kind of fat today you know that's probably not the most consistent and and we're susceptible to our own bias so you can this one is for this uh kind of chart here is from kentucky equine research um and they they show exactly the things that they're looking at um and how they're scoring their horses with particular attention to often you know um, the cresting of the neck, uh, creases down the back. Um, can I see the ribs? Um, do the hip bones stick out? You're looking at certain points on the horse the same way this, you know, all the time. Um, what we're aiming to try to do is keep a horse generally in the sort of four to five out of nine range. If you're getting to that six plus range, that's when we might start setting our horse up for problems. Um, then, you know, you can always like don't make this homework for yourself, but you can log or journal things. Um, so you know things like what date is it? Um, what was the measurement or the body condition score you gave the horse that day? Um, and what are the changes and over kind of you know like what time period? So if you're just writing a little mental note of that, then you don't have to question like was it you know was the horse really a, a five out of nine that day or were they a six? You know, well I've written it down. This is what I scored them. These are the things I looked at. You know, I'm on track. Um, so you may notice, um, and again, the, by logging logging these types of things, you may notice trends or seasonal differences in clinical signs of your horse, which may help like uh, determine, is it safe to turn them out onto the grass? Is this a time? I've noticed, you know, they get really foot tender at this time of the year. Maybe I want to keep them inside or in a dirt pen at that time. You know, that's where this becomes helpful. Um, your feed management is uh, also an important thing to monitor. So, um, you know, for if, if you're not the one looking after all your horses all the time, or you've got a lot to look after and you need a hand, um, is it the same person feeding? Especially when you're using things like scoops or um, using, you know, old uh, Tupperware containers and stuff like that. You know, people go, oh, well, I gave them a scoop. Well, is it the same scoop, the same size scoop? Is it, you know, a little scoop? Is it a huge scoop? Uh, I don't know. So just watch, watch for consistency in your management. Um, 
if you know maybe one person has feels a little sorry for the horse or something or they you know oh i know they've been feed restricted i'm just going to give them a little extra where maybe you're adamant about like no they get this i measure it to the t well if they're doing that behind your back and you're figuring out why you can't manage your horse well that could be the the, the issue is just you and your your barn hands are not on page with each other um, and then again, hay testing, you know, do you regularly test your hay or do you purchase it from a tested source? Um, and then always talk to your vet, you know, they can help you guide and monitor, um, monitor these things from both a clinical perspective. So like blood sampling and repeated blood sampling, um, assessing the trend, interpreting those results. That's where they kind of come in. They probably, you probably don't need them to feed your horses, but uh, you might need them for your tricky situations. Um, one thing that's kind of interesting too, similar to the body condition score is what's called the crusty neck score. There was a study um, that found it's actually more predictive of insulin dysregulation than body condition score. So again, nice little chart, score the same way, the same time. Um, and they found that regional adiposity based on crusty neck scores of over three out of five was present in 33% of horses in um, Southwest England. So they're kind of linking the crusty neck uh, there with the regional adiposity. Um, and so I guess this just kind of brings it home and my take home messages for all of you is um, be honest with yourself and your expectations. This is often something I say to people at the end of my presentations because you know sometimes we we just try to go too quick too fast or and and don't realize that these are sometimes very hard management cases and it's going to take time. Um, so have I truly assessed the ins and outs of my feed program? What am I feeding? How much am I feeding? How often am I feeding? You know, if, if you're somebody who just, you know, kind of throws out, a you know, so much hay a day and, you know, isn't really watching and I'm not saying I'm not judging there. Um, because I do it this, the same with myself sometimes, but, um, you know, if again, you're running into a management problem do you are you actually paying attention to that or do you just kind of willy-nilly oh yeah it was kind of two flakes or you know it's kind of four flakes or however many um do we know the non-structural carbohydrate content is the hay tested um you know maybe that's our problem maybe it is actually too high for our horse um are we supplementing so what's the content of our supplements what's the quality of our supplements do we actually need it you know is it doing something um so am I being realistic with my exercise program? Again, consistency, compliance, and commitment. Um, is it the right intensity, the right duration, the right frequency? Am I monitoring any parameters? Um, are they getting you know, worse in terms of their, their lameness or are they holding? Um, so this collection of risk factors um, is common. Um, EMS and PPID are common. So I hear a lot of, uh, Great, I have one of those horses. Well, a lot of a lot of people have those horses. So, like, it's again something we're seeing more commonly all the time. Um, early detection and management may save you a lot of vet bills in the long run, and you can always start your monitoring or begin the diagnostic process um, at home or early on. So, and what I mean by this is, you know. Um, maybe when your horse starts to get to mid age or older, you just might want to pull a, a blood sample and be like, Hey, I just want to take this off my worry list. Um, yes, they're good. Or, Oh, actually we did find something. Maybe we need to start management because they're, they're starting to get to the, the right time of their life. 
Um, the other thing is, is, you know, maybe you're not overly suspicious, but you're like, I just feel like they don't do so well on that grass or on this. Well, change your feed program, start logging things. Um, and then you can start your investigation process right then and there, you know, if they seem to do better, well, you know, you're already tuning into your horse. So then, you know, if you have a, a, a laminitic flare or you do run into a problem, then you know, okay, hey, I've made improvements with this. I've tracked it. I know that. Um, now let's go to my vet and just see if there's anything that I can do to maybe hold off the flares. I've done really good, but I just need a little more help. Um, and then sometimes, like I said, this, this um, condition is not always straightforward. Um, you don't always get your answer on the first go you don't always detect it on your first blood draw. So that's fine. If you're still running into a wall, keep trying, work in close conjunction with your vet, your farrier, um, if you have anybody who's maybe helps you with your nutritional programs and, and you respect their opinion, talk to them, um, and then just be persistent. So, and uh, for most horses, your, your key take home is lay off the grass. So thanks for listening. I hope I didn't bore you too much. And um, yeah, everybody keep a positive mindset. I know it's a weird time, but uh, thanks for uh, sparing a few minutes of your day to join the Energy Equine team. So we do have some questions, Travis. Um, this is actually coming from a vet student and this was, she says this is only ever discussed in small animals. Do you do ACTH stim or dexamethasone suppression tests in horses? Uh, no, I don't. And they actually talk about doing the, the oral um, stimulation test with glucose. And as you're a vet student, I am going to pull up a little note here so you don't uh, crucify me. Um, but let's just see if I can find this little kind of fun fact here. So they were looking at um, glucose administration in ponies and found that they have a, uh, they demonstrated greater insulin secretion um, response in oral administration of sugars versus IV administration of, of a sugar or of insulin. So, um, and this is indicating that the, the gut probably has a role in, in augmenting the insulin release from the pancreas in response to a meal. So I think they want you to go towards, um, and this is for your more like kind of equivocal cases. So sometimes I'd say, um, you know, look at this, this diagram here and kind of follow this. Um, for a lot of cases, this will keep you on track here. Um, you can pull a resting insulin. It's easy for the owner because, again, they don't have to worry about fasting. It's easy for you because you can go on sort of your own time schedule if you can't, you know, get there right in the morning after they've maybe been fasted all night. It takes a lot of headache out. Um, just keep in mind, you might not get your answer directly with this test alone, but this is probably the best place to start. Then if you run into a wall, because of what I just said about the, the oral stimulation and the insulin response with that getting a, a higher um, um, response, um, that will push them over that threshold for those horses that um, the blood results kind of like, oh yeah, they're close, but not quite there. Um, 
then you know that's actually they found a more effective test um, than those other things from what I've read. Does that answer what you need? Sorry. Um, okay, another question that came in was we got lots of questions coming in, lots uh -oh. of people saying thank you. I, I'm <laughs> You guys are really, you're really trooping on. Yeah. I'm sorry we ran over so long, but we're going to keep answering your questions because we're here. Uh, Caitlin Jollymore, um, she asked a couple things that I think were answered in the presentation, but one thing that she asked um, is beet pulp an appropriate feed for an IR horse. I've heard some say hell no, but others say that the sugar is extracted from the sugar beet, so it's very high fiber but low sugar. Yeah, and I think the key here, um, watch it, like be careful. Um, and, and I think I saw another question too about um, grasses, I believe, because I'll tie these into, yes. So there was another question, is there uh, any truth to, to the myth that the fat horse cannot get founder or laminitis from being on Timothy or other mostly forage hay? And I'll link these together here. Um, don't listen to that any horse can founder. <laughs> so um, on any kind of feed potentially. And this is because founder is a um, multifactorial process and there can be different things at play. There can sometimes be multiple things at play at the same time. Timothy is considered a safer grass because the fruit tan levels and things tend to be lower in those grasses versus things like rye grasses, um, um, and, and a few other forages, but no, a horse can still founder and it is still an emergency on Timothy hay. And then coming back to the beet pulp, um, it's what's considered a more complex carbohydrate. So when we're talking about simple sugars and simple carbohydrates, they're broken down very easily. They're broken down very fast when they get broken down and that release causes a um and from their meal they get an increase in their blood glucose in their bloodstream um and so then again we need this insulin to come along and deal with that um where if we have um this huge um huge spike and then we know that causes some problems in and of itself and then the next thing is going to be a huge insulin spike which we also know has associated problems then we want to avoid those easily broken down feeds. Beet pulp tends to be broken down a little bit slower because it's more complex carbohydrate. And so your arc of your blood sugar release and your insulin release is a little bit more moderated. So uh, again, yes, it, you know, could, um, I don't want to say it's dangerous for your horse, but monitor those things. Um, or if your horse, you give it beet pulp and it seems to have really tender feet, well, maybe your horse is just truly that sensitive to sugars. Um, they're probably also going to have to really watch them on the grasses and they may be a horse that can't handle really any grass. So tune into that, but it is a little bit of a safer carbohydrate for the horse and actually is recommended by, um, some, some endocrinologists. So. Okay, Trav, another one uh, that's coming in. Can a horse with Cushing's have glucosamine supplements to help manage, help manage arthritis, or would that be bad for their insulin and ACTH levels? I, th I think we might be getting confused here with like glucose sort of sounding like glucosamine. Yeah, um, 
so um, as far as I'm aware, I don't think glucosamine is uh, is a dangerous thing in the metabolic horse. Do not hold me gospel on that, but um, there, no, it should be fine. And I would recommend probably some supplementation. Um, they found sort of variable results in the horse with glucosamine. Um, and it may depend on powder versus uh, liquid forms of it, but um, no, it shouldn't, you know, create huge spikes in in your uh, glucose in your blood glucose or your insulin responses, as far as I know. Um, this is a I really like this question. This is from Catherine. Is there a way to detect predisposition in, say, pre-purchase exams before purchasing a horse of a predisposed breed like Andalusians? Or is it simply a question of maintenance, environment, or housing? Um, as in any Andalusian will develop EMS in the right, wrong condition. So predisposition, de to detect predisposition in a breeds that already are predisposed. One second, Trav. Okay. Um, I feel like there might be somebody a lot smarter on this topic. This is, this is a good question. Um, I don't know without maybe and, and I, there are some genetic markers, but I think you're basically just going to run into um, a logistical nightmare here, trying to actually um, tune into the genetics of those types of horses and find an exact predisposition for your horse in a jiffy on a pre-purchase. So um, what I'd say is if you know you haven't, if, if you're interested in getting an Andalusian or have an Andalusian, which, or, you know, a certain breed that may be at higher risk, then what I'd say is, you know, try to address diet from, you know, your horse doesn't have to be an equine metabolic horse to start looking at, you know, providing a good level of nutrition and a safe type of diet. You can start doing that already. So if we know that there could be um, predispositions in that breed, then why not just try to set them up from the get-go on, on a bit of a, a good foot? Um, what I would say is that you could absolutely pull a, um, a insulin, a resting insulin sample at a, um, you know, a pre-purchase examination and or a Cushing's panel um, to look at those things and um, if your horse comes back you know with normal ACTH levels um, no clinical you know that on the pre-purchase examination there's no clinical signs that that horse may be either equine metabolic or PPID um, so then you can pull that blood sample as I just want to again know that that is not on the table right now at the time that I'm about to purchase that horse so if your ACTH is within normal levels, your insulin is within normal levels, there's no clinical signs detected on um, pre-purchase examination, and maybe nothing mentioned that is a red flag in the history provided by the seller, then I would say you have a, a reasonable um, amount of information to say that that horse is not um, you know, suffering from those conditions at this time, we have no reason to believe other than that they may be a predisposed breed, um, that they could develop this later on. Again, you know, it is common, so it, it, it's very, um, could be likely, I guess, but we don't have a crystal ball, so we can't look into the future. So what do we have at the time that can help us make that decision? And that is clinical signs, blood test, um, or an insulin level.
You're not on call. I had a little moment where I was like, is he on call? Um, is there a different difference between first versus second cut hay in terms of sugar content? Yes. Um, again, because uh, those first cut hays tend to be, oh, I hope there's no farmers around right now. They'll probably grill me, but I'm digging into sort of nutritional vet school here. Um, but your, uh, your first cut hays um, are probably cut earlier on in the season when spring has been at play and we have quickly winning crops. Um, those fast, quick growing crops tend to have higher sugar content. So if we cut them earlier when the sugars are still there before midsummer is hit and they've, or, you know, like later on in the season, when they've had time to dry out, the sugars have kind of moved out of the plant then yes. So second cut haze could be uh, more safe than a first cut hay. But again, um, test your hay is probably the ideal. Uh, thanks for all the kind words you guys as you're leaving. It's really sweet to read. We really appreciate it. Uh, Jennifer Frogley asked, Travis, does a horse that puts on weight over winter but trims down come spring increase their risk of EMS? Hmm. I'm not entirely sure on that one, but if, um, this is not something I've read, but um, if you look at a, a horse in the wild or in a more natural setting, um, they tend to lose a bit of weight over, um, over winter time. This is a normal kind of like metabolic uh, response because again, we have, um, we have some very harsh conditions over winter time. There's usually less feed around because of that. Horses have to move a lot further to again, um, and again in quite stressful conditions to get enough um, caloric intake. So, you know, if we're kind of flipping that pattern, that's telling me maybe there is something at play. I don't think it's crazy to, you know, test and at least maybe rule that out, particularly if you are seeing clinical signs or are worried about it. I think there's value in pulling a blood test just so I don't have to sit there and think about it every night. Um, that might be your answer. But no, I, I wouldn't say there's, you know, a dead shot. My horse is a metabolic horse. My horse has a problem. But I haven't read anything specifically that I can comment to that. Sorry. Uh, Susan Lake says, thank you so much. Fantastic presentations. I'm thinking about obesity and myself. Ah! <laughs> Same, Susan. COVID's been hard. The World Health Organization told us to stop drinking. Oh, brother. Uh, brother. Okay, Cheryl Yingst Bartel says, can you address EMS horses that are not obese? Uh, yeah, yeah, it's, it's quite, um, I mean, similar. You may not notice, um, but if they're losing weight, again, uh, the question that goes through my mind is, so if they're kind of a, a lean horse that you maybe suspect, then, you know, if you're having trouble keeping weight on, or maybe they're not dropping weight, but you're just, you're, you're like, I'm feeding them quite a bit and they're not, you know, I'm not getting anywhere. Um, then um, how's their teeth? So is the feed actually getting in, getting chewed up, getting digested, probably the way um, that they are. Um, do, do I see those clinical signs that may put you onto a suspicion of um, a metabolic disease? Um, and then, you know, do, do I maybe have, like I notice um, weird problems with the grass, you know, do I have a horse that um, 
is maybe uh, both, you know, PPID and EMS. So I'll just try to get back to that one Venn diagram here. I don't know my own presentation. There we go. So, um, so here's, I guess this bubble is our equine metabolic horse, um, who this would be, I guess the clinical sign would be the lean. Um, they're still at what's considered a high laminitic risk. And um, we, so um, I guess this here is our lean. Um, and you're you're really gonna like I guess manage these horses the same way I guess it's your what I'm trying to say is like your identifiers that you know for me the tip off for for EMS a lot of the time is I walk up to a big crested horse you know neck and I look down at the feet and they've got growth rings you know that I don't necessarily need a lot more of a physical exam um, sometimes to um, put me onto that track um, so really the management will be very similar. My one caveat would be make sure you're not missing PPID with EMS and um, make sure you're maybe tuning into more subtle clinical signs. Does I think that addresses her question. Um, I'm trying to pull this up for Stephanie and I can't get our VPN open. Um, do you know the estimate cost of the blood panel test? I do. <laughs> um, so oh, wait. Okay, um, so the one to Guelph, uh, which gives you more information and is probably the ideal to pull for an EMS horse, is um, about a hundred, sorry, two hundred and thirty-five, two hundred and forty dollars um, through this clinic. Um, we do have to ship it to Ontario, so keep those factors in mind. Um, there'll be a little bit more of a delay in the. Um, in the response, and that's fine. They're usually still pretty fast about it. Um, the you can, if you're suspicious of those horses that may also be um, PPID or just have a strict, you think it's a PPID horse. You don't always need the insulin, um, but I I feel that in cases like this, um, especially if you get a negative ACTH result, then you're going to have to pull the panel and probably send it anyway. So you sometimes might as well just send the one panel um but yeah if we can send just acth to a lab here in calgary and it's about 135 140 bucks so but i i if you are suspicious of ems pull the guelph panel if you're suspicious of ppid only you can maybe get away with just sending it to the calgary lab uh, it is cheaper it doesn't tell you as much okay we're gonna get down to the last few here uh, Lauren asks, can you discuss age and risk a little more? I have a five-year-old mare that presents with some signs despite all the management I could do on my own. And when I brought this up with my vet, it was brushed off, presumably because the mare is so young. Sorry, can you just repeat that one more time? Ah, sorry, guys. Uh, I have a five-year-old mare that presents with some signs despite all the management I can do on my own. And when brought up with my vet, it was brushed off. So can you discuss age and risk a little more? So I'm assuming young horses yeah. with uh, EMS. You're good. So this is where, this is how I was taught. So um, this is where the verdict is maybe still a little out, but they, 
I think there's a little bit of confusion. Um, do some of these horses start as an equine metabolic syndrome horse earlier in life? Again, keeping in mind that equine metabolic syndrome is not exactly a disease. It, PPID is, you have an enlargement in one part of the brain that throws off your hormone, your a key axis that releases your hormones. EMS is a collection of risk factors. Um, so I was always sort of taught that general rule of thumb, some of your equine metabolic horses tend to start showing clinical signs. They could be setting up, up the, the condition or the process earlier, but they often start showing clinical signs in around the eight to 10 mark, uh, year old mark, where your equine uh, Cushing's or your PPID horses they tend to be older, a little bit older horses when you start noticing the clinical signs, often more like the 12 to 15 year old mark. They say that probably 85% of Cushing's horses are over the mark of uh, 15 years old. So I guess for me clinically, when I'm thinking about these things um, is, I, wouldn't, I probably wouldn't brush you off because of commonality of these conditions. Um, but if I have an older horse, PPID goes a little higher up on my radar, um, especially, you know, when all the clinical signs are fitting, they tend to also be your skinnier horses. And, um, because they have high levels of ACTH, unlike your EMS horses, ACTH relief causes release of cortisol, or you can kind of think of that as your stress hormone. And normally when we need it in a flight situation, ACTH comes on, um, causes release of cortisol, then there's a feedback loop, we shut off the, the process when we don't need it anymore. Um, with PPID horses, there's a breakdown in that feedback and they cannot really shut that off and they have persistently high um, cortisol levels. So, um, and that will contribute to weight loss where your EMS horses often are your easy keepers or your weight gain horses. Again, keeping in mind that overlap between the two can be confusing. Um, so um, if I have an old horse that maybe has a big hay belly, but is skinny towards the top of the ribs and the, and the, ba the back line, make sure they're just not in poor you know, top line condition. Um, but that's often looks Possibly, but they're an older horse with this skinny back and like big weird belly um, that might tip me off for PPID. If your horse, like you're saying, is around the five-year mark and you're struggling with weight loss, um, maybe not seeing a lot of the clinical signs yet, you could be below that sort of, you know, eight to 10 year mark where you really start to see clinical signs kick in. Um, so yeah, so make sure you're not going down a rabbit hole and just, you know, searching for the same thing over and over and over again all the time. But if you're truly strongly suspicious and you're taking all the appropriate management considerations and you're still not winning, yeah, start start going down the path or push your vet to say, hey, like, look, it's, uh, it's my pocketbook. I want, I'm worried about it. Please test it so I can stop worrying and losing sleep. That's how I'd look at it. <laughs> okay, guys, uh, a couple other comments and we're going to do our giveaways and let you guys go uh, and get out of this hot boardroom that we're stuck in. People are calling me Nancy Hewlett, which is really funny. This is a paid energy equine account. I'm not Chad's wife. <laughs> she's downstairs. She's doing, she's downstairs doing all the reception right now and everything else that we need to keep rolling. It's been a wild time. Um, but thank you for your kind words. Uh, at, 
Angela, yeah, work, work wife, I suppose. <laughs> um, Angela says, will we be able to have access to the recording of this presentation? Uh, I have been recording it. I'm hoping it comes out well. I didn't realize it was recording my screen. So I have had like the group chat and stuff up. Um, so I don't, we'll see how it looks. Uh, if not, we'll recreate them on podcast form and at our podcast, Writing to Excellence, and put those up on YouTube. Um, Mike O'Neill, that's uh, he teaches the Ferrier program at Olds yeah, College. Yeah. Love, we had a lot of Olds College people on here today, including Joanne Wright. Um, such a wonderful school and program that they have. Yeah. He had asked if we suggest any other reading materials. Someone else had already answered thank you and said thehorse.com. That's an excellent site. Um, most, if not all, articles are either written by or sourced by veterinarians. Um, so you can find a lot of great information on that site. Okay, uh, lots of thank yous. We love you guys. We miss you big time. Uh, Trav, can you pick a number between 1 and 21? Oh, yeah. 18. Oh, my God, 18. 17 was the last time. Okay. Was it? Yeah. Oh, Amber Teed. I don't know if she's on here, uh, but she's the winner of an Energy Equine hat and then our new supplement, Kentucky Equine Research Right Track. This is a, um, a supplement, <laughs> very Vanna of me, that we recently brought in that we're really enjoying. Uh, it covers uh, a lot of foregut and hindgut health. It has buffering qualities in it and it's a proprietary blend. So you can't get this blend anywhere else. So Amberlynn Teed, congrats to you. You won the right track. I will get in touch with you. Travis, what, are you, you're muted. Do you need to speak? Sure. Okay, just one second. <laughs> Okay, go. Sorry, congrats, Amber. But also, um, I that spurred me on to one other question I saw here that I'll just really quickly answer. Um, I have a horse with metabolic syndrome. She is going to be restricted, because I think this is a very good question. I have a horse with a metabolic syndrome. Uh, she is going to be restricted to a dry pen once the grass starts to grow, uh, which will cause her some stress. Is she at risk for oh, ulcers yeah. due to the stress associated with confinement? The reason I bring this up is because that right track is a fore and gut, um, fore and hind gut uh, sort of buffer for um, horses, for ulcers. Um, and so, yes, yeah, you really do need to watch those things with your horses if they are going to be stressed out about going in a dirt pen because they are um, away from their buddies, because they love to eat and they can't now. Um, you know, all those reasons. Plus, um, we know that in the horse, um, they don't shut off acid production. And it's ideal to emulate, if you can, a grazing, a natural grazing um, pattern. So they should be grazing sort of like 16, 18 hours a day. Well, if we're going to lock them up in the dirt, yes, that could be very stressful. Yes, that could absolutely play into an ulcer problem. You should you try try to hold off the ulcers with some kind of um, maintenance product or um, you know put them on something like gastrogard or sucralfate um, to aid yeah actually i meant to ask that question that was a really great question okay the last giveaway travis you have to pick a number between one and 37. 36. oh my gosh okay that's easy oh talia thalia edwards that's yeah. our great friend from equus so thalia you have one this Phycomax supplement, we actually don't carry it, but it's from our great friends at Decra Veterinary Products. It's a new supplement for joint health and cartilage growth. Decra is a great company backed by scientists all around the world, so this is an awesome product. They also have this little Dermalay conditioning spray. for It's formulated for dogs, cats, and horses. You can use it on your kind of springtime when they're shedding and they're getting a little um, itchy. It's a great product as well. Very popular in the small animal world. And 
a fun energy coin hat. So I will uh, reach out to you on Monday, get your address and ship all this fun stuff. Okay. Do you have anything else? You're still muted. So you can't talk. I'll let you talk. Uh, last things is thank you guys, everyone for coming on. Uh, your words are so sweet and wonderful. I can't believe you guys stayed this whole time. <laughs> Hopefully you were drinking wine. Uh, we were not. Um, and if you have any questions, please send us an email to eeoffice at energycoin.ca. Make sure you uh, keep in touch with what we're doing on Facebook, on Instagram, and then also through our podcast, Riding to Excellence. Travis, I'm going to unmute you, and then I'm going to let you take the floor before we end this meeting. Uh, super big thanks to everybody, especially those who really <laughs> wrote out this um, uh, information-dense kind of um, presentation so yeah greatly appreciated it's nice to see everybody uh actually tune into you when you put some some effort into making a presentation and it's really nice that you've supported and continue to support our whole team so thanks very much Thank you.